This afternoon I want to talk to you for a little while about something that has really been on my mind in a lot of different ways lately and that I've been thinking about in our work in the church and our meeting this afternoon when you were discussing the things that you have planned for the future of this congregation made me think about this even more. Because a lot of the time when we think about the work that we have for the church and the work that we need to do, we look at this long list of all the things that we want to accomplish and we say, I am nothing compared to this monstrous list of things that we need to accomplish. And you know, Christ told his apostles, the fields are white, ready with harvest, and the laborers are few. And that's how we feel a lot of the time. When we look at the work of the church, we feel little, and the work of the church is so great. And in a way, it's a good thing for us to feel that way, and it's a good thing for us to look at ourselves as small, because really we are. In the whole scheme of things, we as individuals are small. But instead of looking at ourselves as small and then saying, because I'm small, I don't have the ability. Because I'm small, I can't work for the church. We should be saying, I'm small, but God's big. I don't have the ability, but God does. And so this afternoon, I want to study with you for a little while about God's work through the ordinary and how ordinary people like us can accomplish incredible things for the Lord. I want to start in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, where we see a bad attitude that we often have, which is comparing ourselves to others. And a lot of the time, that's why we feel small, is because we feel like we're not as good as other people in the church. So here in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, it says, But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So a lot of the time, the reason that we look at ourselves the way that we do, and the reason that we feel so small, is we're looking at all of the people around us and saying, I'm not as good as they are. Or we're looking at all the people around us and saying that we're better than they are. Really, either way. And we start comparing ourselves to other people, and that's exactly what the apostles were doing here right before this passage that we just read. James and John and their mother had just come to Christ, James and John asking to be on his right hand and on his left hand. And they were confused about what it meant to be great. We have different passages about the apostles arguing with each other about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so a lot of the time, whether we feel great or whether we feel small, it's all focused on the wrong thing, and we're comparing ourselves against other people. And that causes so many issues in the church. And Christ here says, if you want to be great, just be a minister. Just be a servant in my kingdom. And so we create this high standard for ourselves and an unattainable standard for ourselves. We want to be great and we want to be greater than other people. And Christ just says, be a servant with the abilities that you have. I want to read a passage in Psalms chapter 22. I didn't include this passage on the slides because I decided to include it last minute. But I want to read Psalms chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. This passage represents a good way to think about how small we are in the whole scheme of things and then how to respond to that thought process. So in Psalms chapter 22, in verse 6, David says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised to the people. 
And then as he include or as he continues in this in this psalm, he starts talking about how everyone is against him and how he feels so small against all of his enemies. And then picking up in verse 19, he says, "But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns." I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. David felt alone, and he felt small. And how often do we feel that way as well? Not just in the church, but in our everyday life. Just the different difficulties that we face, the trials that we face as Christians, challenging our faith and our commitment to God. How often do we feel so small? And yet David here said, I will declare thy name to other people. He was going to continue to praise God. He was going to continue to declare the name of God to other people and praise him no matter how small he felt. And so I think that helps us to kind of set the stage for our study today, both of these passages, an example of people looking at things the wrong way and comparing themselves to each other, and an example of someone even feeling very small doing what he needed to do. And so this morning or this afternoon, I want to study a couple of different stories that give us good examples of how small and insignificant people in the eyes of everyone else can accomplish incredible things for God. And I want to start with the story of David. Now, when we think of David, a lot of the time we think of the King David and the David that killed Goliath and the David who was successful and the David who was a man after God's own heart. But when we see him at the beginning of his story, those aren't the things that he looks like. So let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 11 through 13. It says, And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look on. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So to give a little bit of the background to this story, Saul had been the king of Israel up to this point, and he had stopped serving God because of his own pride. So God sent Samuel to select a new king from the house of Jesse. And So he goes to the house of Jesse to meet Jesse's sons, and he meets them one by one. But when he comes to the first, the oldest son, he says, Surely... This is the one. Surely this is the one who's going to be the king over Israel. And God says, no, you're looking at the outside. You're looking at the appearance, and I look at the heart. He is not the one who's going to be the king. And Samuel continues throughout all of the oldest sons, through all of the ones that Jesse had brought as candidates, as possible candidates for, be, for being the king. And none of them are the one that God has selected. And then Samuel says, Are these all your sons? In desperation, thinking, you know, what is God doing? There's all these sons of Jesse here, and he's still saying, it's not any of these. So he says, are all of your sons here? And Jesse says, well, no, there's there's one more. And he's out keeping the sheep. I guess I can bring him in if you want me to. That's kind of the idea that he's portraying here, and that seems to be the attitude that Jesse had toward his own son. He didn't even bring him into the house for Samuel to meet him. He didn't even bring him into the house as a candidate for being the next king. 
He was just the kid out keeping the sheep. But when he comes in, God says, go and anoint him. And I'm sure this must have been confusing for Samuel, looking through the oldest and the strongest sons, the ones who looked like they could lead the nation of Israel in battle, and then coming to the youngest and the weakest and the smallest, and God saying, this is the one. Now, if we think about, you know, oldest versus youngest in a family, that doesn't matter that much to us now, thank goodness, because I'm the youngest. But, you know, in this time, being the eldest was a big deal. That was the birthright. That was the person who had the authority. That was the person who was going to be next in line for whatever type of inheritance or authority there was in a family. And so it makes sense that Samuel, even more than we would today, would look at the oldest and say, surely you're going to pick the oldest in this family. But God doesn't work the way that we work. And we'll continue to see that as we go throughout the story of David. So let's continue to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 28. In this previous passage, we saw Jesse's doubt of David and how he didn't bring him into the house even to be a candidate to be the next king. But we also see other people doubting David in his life as well a little bit later on. So here in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 28, David had just come out to the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And David's older brothers had gone out to fight under Saul. Saul was still reigning as king, although David had been anointed, he hadn't taken the reign yet. And so David goes out and he's going to bring food to his brothers as soldiers in this army. And when he gets there, he finds his brothers and all the armies of Israel sitting in their tents quaking for fear of Goliath. And he asks, why aren't you fighting? Is there not a cause? Aren't we out here for the glory of God? And so this is where we pick up in his story here in verse 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Why was David there? He was there for one simple reason to obey his father and care for his brothers, to give them food and help them to survive the battle that they were going through. He was there to serve, and he was there to humbly follow his father's instructions. And when he gets there and asks a simple question about the purpose of glorifying God, is there not a cause? Why are you not fighting? This is his brother's response to him. Where are the sheep? Where are the sheep at? Why are you shirking your duties and being so arrogant that you would come out here just to see the battle and then tell us what we're supposed to do? His father wasn't the only one putting him out there with the sheep and leaving him there. His brother wanted to do the exact same thing. When David was doing something that was out of the ordinary or separate from what his normal task was, he asked him, where are the sheep? And I think we sometimes feel that way in our position, in our regular lives, and in our Christian lives as well. Like we've got one task that is the maximum that we'll ever be able to achieve. And we feel like really small people because we feel like we can't progress to being something better than we are now. But David didn't listen to the doubt from his brother or the doubt from his father. He just continued serving as he needed to. And because no one else was going to step up and fight against Goliath, he said... I'll do it. But his king doubted him as well. In 1 Samuel 17, 32 through 33, it says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, speaking of Goliath. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. 
And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Now when David continued to push toward this goal of at least someone going out and glorifying God through defeating Goliath through the power of God, God was on their side and he knew it. So he knew that whoever went against Goliath with their focus on God, knowing that he would give them the victory, he knew that they would be able to glorify God and take that victory over Goliath. But when no one else would do it, he said, thy servant, I will go and fight against Goliath. And he continued to just, just humbly serve as he knew to do in his humble and lowly state. And Saul says, you are not able because you're just a kid. And he has been a man of war ever since he was your age. He's been fighting ever since he was your age. But David con continued, and he was persistent. Through all of this doubt, he continued to just trust in God and do what he needed to do in the moment. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 48 through 49, we see his final confrontation with Goliath. It says, And it came to pass, when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. Now if we think about this battle between David and Goliath, Everything looks impossible. And sometimes this is how we feel with the, the problems in our lives that may look small to other people, but are huge to us. I don't know what your Goliath is, but I have mine. And I know you have yours. We all face giants in our lives that we look at and say, I have no chance. I'm too small. My talents aren't developed enough. I'm not experienced enough. I can't do it. And David just said, I'll take this role. I'll do what I need to do in the moment and I'll just serve. And so he goes out and he fights against Goliath and it seems like the odds are so stacked against him and they are in physical terms. But he goes out and he defeats Goliath. Now how could he do this? Let's go back a couple of verses into verse 45 through 46 where it says, Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. You know, David had faced a lot of doubt. And he had an opportunity here to prove himself to his brothers and to his king and to his father. He had an opportunity to prove himself to them and say, I have the ability and I have the strength. I can go out and fight against Goliath. And he could have very well taken that perspective because of all the doubt that he had received. But instead he said, this day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. And his purpose was for all the earth to know that there was a God in Israel. And because of that attitude, and because he kept his focus on God, and because he trusted in God, God gave him the victory. Now, I'm not going to claim, and I'm not going to teach to you this afternoon, that God's just going to solve all our, all our problems if we trust in him. But we gain strength when we put our trust in him. And eternally, 
Our problems will be solved if we put our trust in him. Whatever your giants are, whatever your Goliath is, you have a way better chance against those giants, and you have everything for you in the long term if you just put your trust in God and use the talents that you do have to work now. Now I want to look at a second story this morning about Naaman and his path to healing. And this story isn't just a story of one humble and seemingly insignificant person, but many insignificant people surrounding one person that seems very important. So let's look in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Assyria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Now before we really dive into the insignificant characters in this story, let's consider who Naaman was. Naaman was captain of the host of the king of Assyria. He was known as a great man, an honorable man, and a mighty man. This is the type of guy who Samuel would have looked at and said, he's worthy to be the king. This is the type of individual that we would often look at and see them as having no obstacle too big. One who could accomplish anything. But his body was falling apart. And he was dying. And he was hopeless. And he had no chance without God. He was a leper, and so his body was slowly decaying. And this little servant girl who waited on his wife says, I wish that my master could be with the prophet in Israel because he could heal him of his leprosy. So someone so great and so powerful but dying, why would they listen to a little servant girl with no importance, no potential, a captive away from her land, who made this simple statement of, I wish he was in Israel because there's some prophet that could heal him. Why would he listen to her? Because he was dying, and because he was desperate. And he did that very thing. He listened to her, and he followed her instructions. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 9-10, through 10, Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Now Naaman came to the house of Elisha, and he expected a couple of different things, but here's what he got. Elisha sent a messenger, a servant, out to him, and he said, Go and dip in the river Jordan seven times, and you'll be cleaned of your leprosy. And Naaman was furious because he said, I thought that Elisha was going to come out and lay his hand on the place and make it clean. I thought he was maybe going to say some strange words and solve all of my problems. I thought he was going to do something incredible, and all he did was send out a servant to the door to say, go dip in a muddy river. He said, aren't the rivers of my home country so much better than Jordan? If I want to take a bath, why don't I use them? Now this is a picture of the Jordan River. And I don't know about you, but when the water comes out of the shower spigot, I want it to look the opposite of that. That is not what I'm looking for when I'm wanting to be clean, when I'm wanting 
to not have germs, whatever it is, that's not the water that I'm looking to use. And that's exactly what Naaman was saying too. Aren't the waters of my home country so much better than the Jordan? Why would I first of all listen to a servant? And second of all, why would I dip in the Jordan? And so he was about to just turn away in a rage and go back to his home and continue dying when more servants came to his rescue. In verses 13 through 14, it says, And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, likened to the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman knew he had no hope on his own, but he was still so outraged at the fact that this was something simple and that it didn't seem to be powerful or incredible enough for his great status. He was about to turn away and go back home and keep falling apart and dying. And his servants simply say, if he'd said to do some great thing, you would have listened. Why not when he says to do something simple, like just go in the Jordan and dip seven times? And he listened to them. Again, he's listening to the instructions of servants, those who seem ordinary, those who seem insignificant. And he went and dipped seven times in the Jordan, and his flesh was clean like a little child. His leprosy was instantly gone. Let's consider what these different roles in this story represent and how we can model ourselves after the servants who simply did what they knew they needed to in the moment. The little servant girl, she doesn't play a big role in this story, but how would he have begun on his road to recovery if it weren't for her? She has a very short portion in this story, and all she said was, I wish my master could be in Israel with the prophet so he could be healed. But that was all it took to start him on his path to recovery. We as Christians have an obligation to help people recover from sin. And sometimes we don't know the answer. Sometimes we don't know what we need to tell that person is the solution to their sin problem. But you know what we can tell them? I know someone who has the answer. Or I know where to go to find the answer. It can literally be that simple. And our role as Christians to help people recover from sin can be as simple as saying, I know where to find the solution. And opening the scripture and finding it. Or sending them to someone who already knows the answer. Think about the servants, or rather the single servant of Elisha who came to the door and showed him what he needed to do to be saved from his leprosy. Now we can be that person as well. We can be the person who opens the book with someone and teaches them what they need to do, how to obey the gospel in order to be saved from their sin sickness. Or we can even be the person who, when they start to turn away from the gospel, say, you know, this is a simple thing. And you have nothing to lose. You're dying from sin. You have nothing to lose. Why not obey? You know, we play simple roles as Christians, and we often look at ourselves as very simple and ordinary people because that's what we are. We're simple and ordinary people. But that's all God has asked us to be. We set this standard for ourselves that we will never rise to. And all he's asked us to do is serve with the abilities that we have now. Think about other examples of people in Scripture who seemed very ordinary. 
consider Gideon. He was a poor farmer in the oppressed nation of Israel, surrounded by enemies, and he was basically hiding from all of those enemies and hiding his crops from them so that they wouldn't steal from him. He was at an all-time low. But God chose him to go out and deliver the Israelites from that oppression with pots and lanterns. That's a simple and insignificant thing. But he was able to deliver the Israelites from oppression through the power of God. Rahab was a harlot from the doomed city of Jericho, and she was going to die if nothing changed in her life. But she aided the Israelite spies there in Jericho, and eventually because of that, and because, her trust, because of her, her fear and trust in God that he was going to do what he said that he was going to do, her whole family was saved when the, the nations of Israel came to destroy Jericho. Think about a couple of other figures in the scripture. Jacob was the younger son in a nomadic family. We talked a little bit about the difference between the eldest and the youngest. So he was really taking no priority in his family. And he preferred domestic tasks. He liked working inside with mom rather than going outside and hunting. And so he was really looked down on for some of those things. But he eventually became the father and the namesake of God's people, the nation of Israel. Saul of Tarsus viciously persecuted the church but eventually became an apostle and a great teacher and wrote the majority of the New Testament. So if you look at each of these individuals, at the start of their story, they look so small and so insignificant and so incapable of doing anything for God. And yet they were so victorious for him. What is God asking of you today? Is he asking that you look great? or incredible, if you look powerful, if you have authority among other people and other people look at you and say, that is an incredible person, what is God asking of you? Well, he explains in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Ecclesiastes 12 and 13 says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is what God expects of you, is simply to fear Him and obey Him. And as we read at the beginning of our study about how Christ was admonishing His apostles to just be ministers, that's all God expects, is just to fear and obey Him. This afternoon I encourage you to fear and obey God in whatever place you are today. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.